cross revealed. And the story of Jesus' trial and Jesus' death in the Gospel of Mark is like trying to get through the Atlantic winter's early spring season. As in winter, we're not able to see the growth that lies behind that's deep at work in the ground, and everything seems lifeless. And with the pandemic added on to that, everything seems burdensome. We feel fragile and alone, and perhaps we find ourselves slipping into despair. And we're asking the question that everyone asks, is help coming? Is help coming? This is where the Gospel of Mark helps us to see the help that is coming. You see, behind the mind of Mark, the writer of the Gospel, is the following question. How do we move through suffering in this in-between time? Remember that he's writing to people after the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And they're wondering, why hasn't he come yet? And they're suffering and being persecuted. He's writing to followers of Jesus that are experience, torture, underneath the power of Rome and underneath their fellow men in Judaism. It's a game of thrones going on here. And at that moment in time, it was the Roman Empire that won the game of thrones. And throughout his gospel, he reminds us of Jesus' response to the disciples during the storm on the Sea of Galilee when he said, I am with you, do not be afraid. The journey is not over. So how do we move through suffering in this in-between time the journey is not over. Do not be afraid. Even in the storm, even in the dead of winter, Christ is here. He's always present and eternal now, right now in our very midst. We can see why God has led us to preach on the Gospel of Mark during this COVID season with hindsight to understand the reality of the, of the theme of Mark's heart here. To move the people of a God in the in-between time through the suffering and the endless questions of why does evil exist and why do good people suffer? Which we might ask ourselves, why did God suffer in our praise? So now as we approach the crucifixion chapter, we've heard it read, Jesus has been scorched. He's been mocked. Soldiers have gambled for his clothing. He's paraded down the streets, the narrow streets of Jerusalem, like a, like a criminal for a crime he did not commit. Women are wailing and grieving and crying out loud, compounded with the feeling of helplessness. Is anybody there today? And one of the streets bears the name the Via Dolorosa, the street of suffering. Jesus, the man they put their hope in and Love has led to the place of public execution and despair. Despair. And Mark does not employ many words as his account of the crucifixion compared to John, for it ends swiftly. And if we believe that Peter fed Mark the scene and the episodes and the language that was needed to write his gospel, it's too painful for him to say anything. Jesus uses the season of the Passover, not the day of the atonement, in which to have a meal with him. He's not discussing, discussing theories of atonement. He's having a meal, and the meal is supposed to cause them to remember their deliverance from Egypt and from Pharaoh and another Game of Thrones winner in his time. And then they put Jesus on the cross with two other criminals receiving the same fate that day. 
And the sign above his head says, King of the Jews. And then it gets really dark in Mark. And that should awaken our senses if we know the Old Testament to the plagues, to the time of their deliverance from Egypt, when they are moving from bondage and slavery to crossing a Red Sea as God dries up the waters, which should bring back the image of Genesis, where God dries up the waters and begins to create the world and brings harmony and new order, and God is doing a new creation again here. Amen. And they're eating that meal, and he's celebrating a new covenant with them at that time. Not a theory, but a meal. And he has a meal with the two men on the road to Emmaus as well. And they need to hear from the Old Testament the story of Israel to get it. Because if you don't understand the story of Israel, you haven't understood the story of Christ. Mark is speaking to an early church moving through the birth pangs of suffering. Pain. When is he coming back? How long do we need to suffer? And he wants you and I and all the readers of all the time since he wrote it to not be engaged with the theories and the theological debates of why Jesus had to die. He wants you to move into his suffering, to understand your own suffering, to understand your own pain. And he wants us to enter into this reality. Listen to what Brian Zan says. To enter deep into the mystery of the cross is to encounter the greatest revelation of who God is. For being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is, the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the God who spoke to Abraham, the God who spoke to Samuel, the God who spoke to David, the God who still speaks today. He's revealed on a cross and pain and suffering. Have you entered into that? Because when you enter into that, you're free, Amen. free indeed from all the crazy questions we ask as human beings. We know the cry, the cry of abandonment. Darkness lasts for three hours. And then Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this dark, terrible moment when Jesus enters into the realm of unnatural darkness. It's not an eclipse. You can't explain it by scientific theories. Darkness took place there. Abandonment was real. He responds to the violence that they're heaping upon him, not by retaliation or calling 10,000 angels, but he quotes scripture. This is the beginning of Psalm 22, verse 1. You need to read the whole psalm, and it's entirely on your own time to understand what's going on here. And by the way, you even read the passion narratives to understand the psalm and its correspondence to those events that took place in the life of Jesus. You see, in that dark, horrible moment, Jesus enters into this realm. Brokenness. God forsaken. But we can ask, how can God be God forsaken? Did he really forsake his son? See, this is the only saying of Jesus on the cross recorded in Mark, but we know that there's other ones. We did a series on that a few years ago, the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. He's praying this song, this song that expresses excruciating isolation, emotional devastation, physical pain, to identify fully with us, to share our human despair, 
to the full. So whoever is suffering and thinks God doesn't care, yes, he does care. He's entered into your suffering for your sake. Amen. He has not forsaken anyone. And we know that Jesus is not just uttering that first verse. Because we know that when somebody sings a song that we are familiar with, whether it be a pop song or a gospel song or a spiritual song or an R&B song that none of you know about, <laughs> we know what's coming next. We know the next line. We know the next line of a simple song, happy birthday to you. The next line is a happy birthday to you. So Jesus and the ones listening, they know what's going on here. They know what's following that first verse in, chapter, in Psalm 22 and what's going to roll off in the subsequent verses there. And he's got this musical score there. Can I just tell you it's not in rage that Jesus, rage that Jesus is crying out. He's praying. He's not upset. Yes, he is lamenting. But even in the moments when everybody is inflicting upon him the punishment that should be ours, he doesn't give up. He prays for you. Amen. Even while he's dying, he's praying for you. Amen. For you, for all of humanity. Because he is humanity's representative. Mm. Remember what John said in his gospel? It is for this reason that I've come to this hour. Oh, he knows what's going on. He knows what's taking place that there on Calvary or Golgotha. It means the same thing. Place of the skull. Both those terms. For this reason I came. That's what Jesus came to die. But why? For the bystanders, it looks as if all is lost. It looks like the dogs are waiting. Also another phrase from Psalm 22. But hold on. Don't stop singing that song. Psalms 22. Remember that was the hymn book of the people of Israel. It was the songs they sang. Because in verse 24 we read, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he hidden his face from him. God did not abandon his son on the cross. Jesus is speaking those words. And he doesn't sense the presence of God, but God is still there. Read the psalm. Instead of a picture where an angry God pours out his wrath upon the Son and utterly rejects him, the cross is the moment when the Father absolutely refuses to forsake the Son. Hello? Mm. I know there's some theology going around that's contrary to what I'm saying, but I don't believe that stuff. I don't believe that. See, coming generations will see this event not as a divine rejection, but as a divine presence of rescue and salvation for you. Hello? Because he died, we can face tomorrow. Amen. We jump to the resurrection too early without understanding fully what's taken place on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we leave it as an aftermath. But all along in the Gospel of Mark, he says, take up that cross, deny thyself, and follow me. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. Eternity is right here, right now. Hello? Continuing to pray for the God. He cannot hear God speaking to him. He never gives up. He never gives up on the Father speaking to him. He never gives up on us for our sake as well. It's here that the cross, on the cross that God is setting the stage for a new creation, a new order, a new covenant. 
The wages of sin is not Satan. The wages of sin is not hell. The wages of sin is what? Death. And the gift of God is not heaven. The gift of God is what? Eternal life. When? In the sweet life. I know right here, right now. I'm saved. Amen. I'm sanctified. Filled with the Spirit of God. Because God, the eternal one, is right here, right now with us. Hello. Amen. Hello. Ben Meyer rightly notes that death is canceled out in the way that shadows are removed by light. Experientially, this is a victory for believers. Remember John chapter 1? That the light came into the darkness and the darkness couldn't snuff it out. In other words, the light, the love, the life of God entered into the realm of darkness, death, and death could not overcome him because he is life, eternal life. See, Christ overcomes evil and death simply by shining the light of the world. Now listen to these words that Ben Meyer says. Death is not a power which Christ has to struggle with. God is not battling Satan. We are. That's right. Hello? Don't put God on a lower level. That's right. God is not battling Satan. We are. That's where the battle comes. It took place in the garden with Adam and Eve because he knew Satan had, knew he had no chance with God. This is what he said. Death is not a power which Christ has to struggle. It's the absence that Christ feels. Hello, did you get that? That Jesus died on the cross to enter the realm of death so we don't have to die. Hello? Amen. He brings that light of God, the life of God, the eternal aspect of God, into that place of death. And he awakens it because of his presence. And because he's truly God and he's truly man, he's done it for God's sake and he's done it for your sake. We can't split out the person of Jesus Christ, though you try in the language of the prayers that we utter. Far from being a moment when the wrath of God is vented upon the Son, the cross is the moment when the relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is most triumphant in the greatest darkness of all time, the cross and the death. Do you ever ask yourself, why would God tell us to love our enemies and he has to pour wrath upon his son? Huh? How can we say God so loved the world but Jesus he poured his wrath and punished him by it? Doesn't make sense to me. See, there was an old patristic, the early church father, saying that says, the unassumed remains unhealed. Hello? Whatever the incarnate one, because it can't divorce what's going on here from the incarnation. Whatever Jesus has not assumed of the human being and the human life cannot be healed. He was born, and being born, he, he represents us, but he also begins to be our healer. And the cross becomes our healer. In death, he enters that realm of death, and he gives hope for us as our healer. And as our healer, he turns us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of our living God. If he has not lived in every sphere that we live, then we are not saved. You understand that? And the word, remember I said this word saved is the same word healed in the Old Testament and in the New and Greek as well. See, the early church really got this. They understood that the death of Christ meant the death of death. Right? That's why they could face execution by Emperor Nero. Right. They weren't afraid to die for the sake of the gospel. They were not reading the gospel of Mike. For those who want to gain their life will lose their life. But for those who want to lose their life, 
for the sake of the gospel and for me. Remember that? It has to go in there too. We'll gain it. We'll gain it. Jesus, the light of the world, entered into the most darkness of human existence, death, and death died. I think the Apostle Paul said it well in his resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your sting? It's gone. Didn't that at the resurrection, on the cross, he nailed death down? Hello? Hello, are you getting that? What do you think the Apostle Paul said? I'm crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And the life I now live, I love, live through faith of the Son of one who loved me. Hello? So, the man with the crown of thorns in the end of the day is the one who wins the game of thrones. Hello? When cornered by evil, Jesus didn't run like his disciples or like us. <laughs> he prayed for them. He continued to pray until his last breath. And then the scripture says he expired. Mm. He gave out his last breath. But the point here is not that the spirit left Jesus. The point here is that the spirit went forth from Jesus to continue his work in you. Did you get that? Because Jesus gave out that last breath. It was the first sign of the Pentecost that was coming upon them, releasing them. Henry Nolan comments that where God's absence was most loudly expressed, God's presence was most profoundly revealed. In the moment where you say, where are you, God? It's the moment where God is right there with you. Amen. Remember Psalm 22? What follows Psalm 22? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, right? He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He makes me walk and pass the righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of what? The shadow of death, I fear no evil. For thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He has prepared a table for me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. My, he's anointed me. And then my cup overflows, and then we said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And don't stop at Psalm 23. Keep singing the songs of the Israelites. In Psalm 24, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Hallelujah! He reigns. He reigns with a crown of thorns. He reigns. And all the earthly crowns of Egypt and Rome and Persia and Babylon have to cast their golden crowns before him that reigns. Above all powers, it's him. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus now ascended, sitting right at the right hand of the Father, which is the opposite of Adam hiding in the bushes. That's right. In the Garden of Eden. Goes right through the Holy of Holies into the presence of the Almighty. And he's there right now praying for you. Not only when he died, he prayed for you. Not only when he rose, he prayed for you. Not only when he ascended, he prayed for you. He's praying for you right now. Can you sense the Spirit speaking to you? Amen. Unless Jesus is God acting for us in atoning reconciliation, writes Thomas, Torres Thompson. Thomas Torrance. We would have Jesus as only a man. But because he's the God-man, not God in man, but God as man, that we are saved. When did the salvation take place for each and every one of us? The day he was hung upon the cross on our behalf. That's when 
salvation took place. What does Mark say we have to do? Repent, believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe, take up your cross, follow me. That's your response for a life that is to be lived now, right now. There's some temple theology here that I'm not going to get into with the veil split in two. Jesus entered into that realm after his death and resurrection. So we have an outsider here in Mark's gospel. The women are at a distance. The men have disappeared. Where have the men gone? We know that John mentions it, the disciple that Jesus loved because he's writing the gospel. But where did the men go? And we know there's a lot of theory, and I'm not going to get into that right now. But the women are still there. They're still there watching the glory and watching the shame, watching the ridicule that, that is thrown and heaped upon our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one man standing there that's not even a disciple of Jesus. And Paul of Gooder writes, At this moment, however, a glimmer of light appears. Imagine a beam of sunshine breaking through heavy black clouds on a stormy day. The clouds are still heavy. The atmosphere is still oppressive. The weather is still stormy, but the beam of sunshine hints that there may be more going on than we can see that above the clouds, the sun shines in the same way here. On one, level, not, on one level, nothing changes. Jesus is still dead. He's abandoned. He's alone. But then the most unlikely of all people makes the pronouncement that truly, surely, this man was the Son of God. It took an outsider. Didn't know the history of Israel. Didn't know what Psalm 22 was all about. That outsider, he's looking at that. And he said, truly, this must be the Son of God. A despised Roman centurion, the one who was responsible for seeing Jesus' death and other people's death. He's seen many executions in his lifetime. He's seen people cry and bawl and everything else, and families weep at, at things, and nothing touched his heart. But somehow, when this man died and gave out his last breath, he said, something different is here. Something different is here. Whether he understood it all, who knows? But he did notice that there was something different in this man called Jesus of Nazareth. He must be the Son of God. Who do you say that he is? This is Mark's gospel. Remember that. It was from this cry, from this suffering, the suffering abandoned Jesus on the cross, that the holy scream went out and split the temple curtain. Mm. And when the temple is split in two, it symbolizes a new revelation is coming. You know what a revelation is? God reveals himself to you as God revealed himself to the saints of old, as God reveals himself still today to you. If you have eyes, if you have a heart, you have a thirst and you have a hunger to find that out. He is revealing your, himself to you that he will permit you to enter into the Holy of Holies with him. That's right. Amen. Remember how Mark's gospel started? This is the beginning of the gospel of how to get to heaven. No. Hello. I know I'm stepping on some toes, but bear with me. I want to speak the truth and not folk theology. This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you know him? Mm. Have you repented? Have you turned to him? 
other stuff is all peripheral stuff. This is the essence of the faith. Christ died for you. Amen. When I said Wednesday night that even Paul's phrase, like Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's some activity there. There's some exchange there. It's a good exchange. It's a good gift from God that you might become the righteousness of God. The confession of the centurion at the climax of the Passion takes on added significance as the first human confession of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Mark at his baptism, it was God speaking. Truly, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. In the transfiguration that we look at, it's God speaking, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But now, it's a Roman outsider centurion declaring the same thing that the very voice of God. Yes, Peter said that he was his Messiah, but Peter never said he was the son of God. They didn't get that. But somehow, this guy on the peripheral of Israel's history, he got it. Do you? Do you get it? Jesus died because God would not give up on our fallen humanity. Hello? God never gives up on us. He did not go to the cross to change God's mind. Hello? Sorry to step on a few more toes. He went there to change us. Hello? Why would he send his son? Why would he love us? Why would he keep on forgiving Israel, forgiving Abraham, forgiving Moses for all the setbacks they do? Why would he do that so that we could change his mind? He loves us. He went there that we might be changed from the inside out in the holy love that is who he is in his character. He wants you to have it as well. He did not die to simply appease the Father's anger. Jesus died to call a Adam's fall. You know what amazes me in the church? How we can believe that we're still sinners and we're all falling short of the glory of God. And that's fine and dandy. And we can blame Adam for that. But when Jesus came to change that type of orientation, we have a difficulty with that. Why? If he came to reverse and to undo the curse of Adam for all of humanity, why can't we believe that Christ wants to take us from the way of disobedience to the way of obedience? And Adam was just a man like you and me. He was an image bearer. He was not the image. Jesus Christ is the exact representative of God Almighty. He is the image. And yet we want to believe that Adam and not this Christ, the Son of God. Why? Why? I can't get that. I don't understand that. Listen to what Buster Cougar says. Adam's existence, so that the Father's dream will be fulfilled, fallen Adam's existence, became a, a holy people as God is holy. That's what happened in Jesus. There the Son of the Father plunged himself into the deepest apse of human alienation and the quagmire of darkness and human brokenness and his stratagem, and he baptized himself in the waters of Adam's fall. Now this is the baptism that John and James could not go through. It had to be God and man. Jesus Christ that had to go through this. He baptized himself in the waters of Adam's fall. There on the cross, he penetrated the last stronghold hold of darkness. There he walked into the utter depths of alienation. There the intolerable, no disobedience shut up by God, the Father at the fall of Adam, found its true fulfillment in Jesus' yes. Not my will, but your will, O oh Lord. Listen to these words from Thomas Torrance. What Jesus did 
was to make himself one with us in a strange humanity when it was running away from into the far country, farther and farther and farther from the Father. But through his union with it, he really was mad, okay? He changed it in himself, and he reversed its direction and converted it back in obedience and faith and love to God the Father. Wow. I think that's what we believe happens in, in the time of sanctification. The bent to sinning in Wesley's words, take away my bent to sinning, Alpha and Omega, be love divine or love excelling. Do you believe that? I do. See, Jesus did not come to save us from the Father. He came to save us for the Father. Hello? I know some of the songs we sing preach a different theology. That's okay. As long as you understand the truth. He did not come to save us from the Father, but to save us for the Father. God doesn't love us because Jesus died. Jesus died because God loves us. Hello? Salvation is not just forgiveness, writes Dallas Willard. It's about a new order of life. The life of disobedience is gone, and the life of obedience has come because Jesus changed direction for all of humanity because he's our representative. Amen. Hello, do you get that? Amen. Anybody get that? Say amen. Yeah, amen. So here we come to Mark's question. How do we move through suffering? And in this between time, you enter the suffering of Christ on the cross. You enter into the victory that he has over the fallen nature of Adam. You enter into the freedom that is ours because of his death. He died so death can die. He entered the realm of death so that the divinity and the life of God may breathe life into that realm. And it shall no longer exist for those who repent believe, take up their cross, and follow him. But we live in confusing times. And I'll close with these words from William Wollemann, a Methodist bishop. And maybe this is the way we feel in this in-between time. We wanted him to do something good for us, something great. And he just hangs there, impotent, mocked by the world, naked and exposed, now crying out in agony to God who was supposed to save. Saving by not saving, delivering by not delivering, embracing through forsaking, coming close by being so very different, true power and complete weakness. Then he sings a childlike prayer like Psalm 22, and everybody knew what was going on. The power of the church is not the strength of this world. The power of the church is our display of the weakness that Christ displayed on the cross for our behalf. For there is power in weakness. Let's pray.